When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Little Rock, Pasternak, Mickey Mantle, Kerouac, Sputnik. Ah, Sputnik, Russian satellite, Sputnik. (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode 60 of We Didn't Start the Fire, a song that's become a podcast that's a history lesson about all the biggest, strangest and most beautiful stories that shaped our world. Billy Joel drew our crazy route map, we just follow wherever it goes. Cold War, hot movie stars, big dogs, dirty dogs, tragedies and triumphs. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. I don't know which size dog I am, but... (laughs) (laughs) Katie, more importantly, school is out. Billy's in. Billy's in. Uh, Why are you pointing at me in a meaningful fashion? I have no idea. (laughs) Uh, So today we're talking about Sputnik and also the Sputnik crisis. 1957, the Soviet Union launched the first ever artificial Earth satellite, ushering in a new age of technology and communication. And most importantly, as far as I'm concerned, a cute word into pop culture that rhymes with my last name, Puckrick. Katie, the very first thing I've noticed about Sputnik is that apparently the S at the start of the word stands for together, and then the Putnik bit stands for traveller, travelling together. So would it be okay if for the duration of this episode we changed your name to Spacey Putnik? Spacey Putnik. I... I like it. I do have a surname that does elicit a certain amount of um, just uh, temporary speech impediments by (laughs) anybody who attempts to pronounce it. So I don't know if I can remember that. But if you address me in that way and also add that meaningful point. I'll point and call you Spacey. (laughs) (laughs) Then I'll understand what's going on. So thankfully, we do have somebody here who's going to address all of these matters and also fill in the blanks. And there's a lot of blanks whenever Tom and I are involved. He is the curator and exhibition manager at the National Space Center in Leicester. And his name is Dan Kendall. Dan, well. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. So I didn't know Leicester was such a hot spot for space. It is, yeah, yeah, right at the heart of it. The uh, the University of Leicester has a space research centre that are real world-leading experts when it comes to satellite component parts, and they've had things in orbit since the 1960s, which is why we uh, end up setting up the National Space Centre here in Leicester. Dan, I've got so many questions about why Sputnik happened, how it happened and the impact it had, but I want to put all of those on pause and just say... What a beautiful object Sputnik was. It is, yeah. It, it's exactly what you want from a space-age object, isn't it? It's shiny, it's silver, it's got the little four antenna hanging out the back of it that makes it look like it's flying through space even when you just see it as a model. But that's really all part of its story, um, and it was all, it was all designed that way. You're talking about this beautiful bauble, which to me, Sputnik, resembles nothing more than a lovely little goo that I might pin on a lapel of a Chanel boucle jacket. But can you talk to me about 
why it looks so beautiful. I mean, was the aesthetics part of it when they were designing it? Yeah, definitely. So uh, Sergei Korolev is really the brains behind the Soviet space operation and, um, you know, such a key player at this time. So he was heading up things like the development of the rocket for Sputnik, but also Sputnik itself. So they dropped the idea of a more complicated satellite, something known as Object D, um, in favour of something a little bit more simple largely to make sure that they won the race between them and the Americans to be the first to launch a, an artificial satellite. So as Korolev was working with his team and they'd come up with this idea that it needed to be more simplistic, his his team bought him some blueprints of something that was more cylindrical in shape and he refused to even look at them because as far as he was concerned, this object had to be moon-shaped. It had to be planetary. Tom mentioned earlier, obviously it translates to fellow traveller or travelling companion Sputnik, Earth is going to be travelling around the sun with this little artificial moon. So anything that was cylindrical or, or, or not spherical like this just wasn't going to cut it for Korolev. But also he kind of uh, predicted the future in some ways. He knew how significant a moment this was going to be. And he wanted the satellite to be shiny um, and, and have the look that it has for some practical reasons. So it's going into space. Um, the sun can get very hot if you're in direct sunlight in space. So the silvered effect, this aluminium alloy that it was made for, would make it very reflective and keep it cool. But also by being reflective, it would mean that you'd be able to see it and track it from the ground in the right conditions as a pinprick of light going across the sky. But more, more even than that, he knew that this thing was so significant it would find its way uh, into museums all over the world, which it has done. Um, we have a one-to-one -one scale model here at the National Space Centre in Leicester, and it was signed off and built on the original blueprints. And the second in command, a guy called Oleg Ivanovsky, uh, he was the person who switched Sputnik on, actually you know, turned the batteries on just before launch. He's actually signed as off as being a really, you know, a, a perfect grade model. So Korolev's prediction came true, and you, all over the world, you will find Sputnik models in lots of different museums. It's surprisingly small, Dan. I thought this would be some vast thing catapulted into space, but it's less than sixty centimeters in diameter. It's a little tiddler. It is, yeah. It's at 50, about fifty-eight centimeters across. Although the uh, the prongs that um, that stick out the back that help it to send the radio signals back. Um, and transmit those, make it a little bit longer, but it, it only weighed 83 kilograms. And, and really that's all to do with the fact that for every, um, it's very difficult getting objects into space. The heavier it is, the bigger the rocket you need, the more thrust you need to get it off the ground in the first place. So by making it quite small, um, it made it a much easier process to get a rocket powerful enough to do that. So they only had a few grand aims with it. One was just to see if they could get a satellite into orbit in the first place. They wanted it shiny so that you could track it and they could start learning about how to track satellites and um, they wanted it to send back radio signals so that it could be audibly tracked as well as visibly tracked. Um, they needed to know how long it would stay up in orbit. We, When we think of space, it's quite common that people imagine that there's some imaginary boundary at about 100 kilometres where um, the moment you, you leave the atmosphere and you're just in, in complete 
vacuum of space and it's not really true the earth's atmosphere thins and but it keeps going so even an, an object like sputnik being about 500 miles above the surface there's still some atmospheric drag so they knew that in time it would come back down to earth um it would get dragged back by the gravity of the planet uh, with that atmospheric dra drag slowing it down so it had to be small which is why yeah, we're left with what is, yeah, it's quite a beautiful object, but certainly not the, so anything near the size of things that we're launching into space these days. So, Dan, the Soviets are polishing up Sputnik and they're revving their engines and they're coordinating the flight path and doing whatever they need to do. Was anybody else in the world aware that this was all going on? Was the launch of Sputnik a surprise? It certainly wasn't a surprise that something was coming. Certainly America knew that the, the Soviets were planning this, but they were definitely taken by surprise as to how quickly it happened. They, you know, obviously they thought they were in the running. They thought they were a little way away from trying to launch their, their own first satellites. Um, but yes, when, when the news broke, you know, sort of the 4th and 5th of October, it, it was certainly a surprise to them. And, and to be honest, the, uh, the Soviet news agency, TASS, they put the information out even before Sputnik had completed its first orbit. I guess that's how confident they were. Um, but it wasn't a huge fanfare from them. And I think the Soviets, to some extent, were, su were surprised by the PR coup that came in terms of how the international media and America picked up on it once it had actually happened. So I just want to get a sense of how miraculous it would have been to... Uh, actually be alive when this artificial satellite is floating around in outer space because this was a time where the idea of spaceships and aliens I mean that was just all part of fantasy science fiction and it must have just filled people with wonder and a sense of the uncanny can you tell us what the response was around the world yeah, there's definitely people who saw it that way. So, as I mentioned before, it's not that nothing has ever been launched into space, but everything that has been launched into space is on a suborbital flight. So we're basically sending a rocket up and it comes back down again pretty quickly. But the moment you get Sputnik, you've now got an object that is travelling through the sky that you can potentially go and see. You can actually orbitally track it from your back garden. You can tune in on, on your radio potentially to hear the signal that it's sent sending back the famous Sputnik uh, beeps. So it suddenly becomes this tangible thing to have things in space. So we've got the land, ocean, atmosphere, planes, all these sort of things. But now space has become something that's no longer just science fiction. We've actually got objects orbiting up there. And it obviously doesn't take a huge leap to start thinking about um, where that might take you in terms of sending humans and building bigger and better spacecraft. But Un undoubtedly, particularly in America, it, there's this uh, fearful reaction as well. Um, one of the key dates behind all of this is that Sputnik is launched on the 4th of October. A few days after that, the Soviets carry out the largest nuclear test that they'd carried out until that point, you know, several megaton explosion. It's pretty obvious what they're saying to America at that point is that, A, we have a nuclear deterrent, but B, we now also have a means of bringing a nuclear warhead down anywhere on Earth. And that's that's a really significant change to the way that Americans have to think about their own technological and engineering superiority. 
to go slightly back to World War II because I always think this is a really important analogy that um, throughout the whole of World War II, um, Americans on mainland America hadn't had to put up with any aeroplane whatsoever going over American airspace. So there's obviously Pearl Harbor, but that's not mainland America. But then throughout the rest of the war, civilians aren't at home like they are in the UK or other European cities worried about what's going to drop on their head from an aeroplane going overhead. They haven't had that experience. And now there's an object in space. We know that the Soviets have got a nuclear capability and there's literally nothing at that point that they can do to stop it. So it could land anywhere. Um, and that's a new experience for civilians in the America, in America and um, certainly one that, that made some people fearful. And I, I think that there were some who probably or, or um, didn't understand that it was going to be such a shock. I'm interested in this idea that not only do we have this new presence uh, in our universe, which is Sputnik, but it also comes with its own identity, its look, its sound, the fact that people develop a relationship with it. It's just a new entity in pop culture. And you mentioned the Sputnik beeps, and that's almost like a little signature or, or a theme song. Can you recreate those beeps? Can you sing us the Sputnik beep <laughs> song? What what was the rhythm, the pattern? Oh, it's basically just beep, beep, beep. Beep, beep. So I'm not going to be winning any masked singer <laughs> or anything <laughs> going forward. Masked so satellite. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, well, I suppose I've actually got a really nice object in our collection, which is connected to that sort of story. In the, uh, you talk about the pop culture side of things, and we talk about what happened in America afterwards. But certainly in the Soviet Union, Sputnik became this incredible, iconic symbol. Um, in in Soviet Russia and in Russia today, they have a tradition of giving New Year's cards, um, Happy New Year cards, and there's lots of ones that suddenly appear with um, Sputnik as the symbol. Um, these great Soviet cartoons. There's a there's a brilliant one I've seen which has Santa in Mission Control watching two later spacecraft docking um, in space and, the, and these brilliant things like that. But what I have on the table in front of me at the moment is a little Sputnik model and it's actually a music box. It's got a flat base and it's got a sort of a semicircle that represents the Earth which is sort of painted on it. And then there's a bit of plastic that looks like it's making Sputnik shoot out over the surface of the Earth. Nice. It's, it's only a few sort of centres, well, it's about sort of 10, 10 inches high, something like that. Um, and if you wind it up, it actually plays um, a tune and it plays uh, Le Internationale, which is the Communist Party, uh, almost an adopted <laughs> song that they took from the revolutionary France. And then every so often, just halfway through the song, it'll just cut out and you'll get these sort of little metallic beeps. Um, I'd love to play it for you, but sadly, the, oh, the yes. it's quite old and the music box doesn't work anymore I'm oh, afraid. but I, I have heard it and I do know a private collector who has his own so yeah and if ever I want to hear that I know someone that I can go to but as is as is sadly just on display and uh, we, we couldn't let our visitors wind it up anyway unfortunately but yeah it certainly becomes part of their culture um, they were always interested in uh, in space it's, it's rooted deep into the uh, into Russian history uh, but certainly Sputnik then becomes this iconic symbol of, yeah, you know, we, di we did this first. This is a really significant moment in the 20th century. If you were born on the 3rd of October 1957, you were born before the space age. Anyone born after the 4th of October, we are living in the space age. And 
there's no way they could have known the impact that satellites would go on to have and how much it impacts our daily lives these days is 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 hard to for people to get their head around sometimes they probably just think of how we use them to help us find our way about on google maps but from the global banking system to how you know which uber is turning up when there's there's so many things we satellites have gone on to become this invisible utility that we really really rely on and there's thousands up there these days and it all begins just with this one object i'll be honest katie i'm really enjoying this episode but there is quite a lot for us to get our little brains around so why don't we have a short time out here for some adverts and come back in a second your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I have never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. Hello, uh, it is us again, Kel Supreze, and we have, Katie, a quick message about something we are very excited about. <laughs> I'm pretty gosh darn excited about it because, Tom, we're doing our very first ever live show. I am buzzed up because it is in a place I've never heard of before in my entire life, but I am going to be intimately connected with it at the end of this whole gosh darn thing. It is a coastal town in Belgium called Ostend, and it's happening this weekend, and we're there from Friday to Sunday, and we're recording the topic, Belgians in the Congo, in front of our first ever live audience at 8 p.m. on Friday night. I'm looking forward to it as well. I've been to Ostend before, but only by accident. So this oh, time yeah. I'm deliberately going to Austin, which is a much better way <laughs> of doing purpose. it. On purpose. Yeah, I'm doing it on purpose. If you're one of our listeners in Belgium, well, come along and say hello. Book your tickets now. We will post the link in the episode description. And listeners, just giving you a heads up that you can now have a look at our fabulous range of fire merchandise. Those damp cloth utopia tea towels are flying off the shelves, so you better get one now. And there's also t-shirts, bookmarks, and signed prints. Anyway, enough blabbing from us. Let's have some more blabbing from us in podcast form. Spacey, how would you have felt had you been in America and you'd looked up from your backyard on a particularly clear night, possibly with the help of an eyeglass, and seen Sputnik racing through the skies? Well, I know that even just looking at the space station in recent years racing through the skies, it does make you feel insignificant, humbled, but also like we're all part of this master plan somehow. And I, I don't know who the master is. And uh, hopefully that master is benign and not malign. But um, I think as a child or even as an old withered crone, <laughs> looking up and seeing the pinprick of light that was Sputnik, I think I would have felt a sense of awe and wonder. 
Definitely there were people who were who would have been just awed by you know, to imagine to be able to go back into your back garden and space has been nothing but science fiction all of your life. And now you can tune your radio and hear the the the, the beeps passing overhead, but also um see it as well but th- there are some amazing stories of how not everyone necessarily felt that way and um I-, I really like a quote from the vatican that came out five days after it had been launched where you talk about you know the, the maker and who was making these the-, the big picture decisions their take on it was that this is a frightening toy in the hands of childlike men who are without religion or morals so so pretty strong stuff yeah strong stuff and i don't entirely disagree with that now what is comforting and perhaps depressing at the same time is the certain amount of continuity in human reaction to the scientific development. So there was this amazing example of technological advancement and the best of scientific minds and what they had to offer. But churches in America started talking about the second coming. Um, There's a story I don't know if it's apocryphal that little Richard saw Sputnik passing overhead during a gig and he walked off the stage and became a pastor. Um, So this whole idea that like, well, they say it's a spacecraft and it's a satellite, but maybe it's something else. And you mentioned conspiracy theories. I was wondering if you could develop that idea, Dan, like tell us what what some people tried to uh, what their interpretations were of what Sputnik was. Yeah, I mean, I I think you're absolutely right. Certainly preaching that this is some sort of sign of the end times was happening within a couple of weeks in American churches. Not all of them, obviously, but just a few of the more extreme ones. Uh, One of the more bizarre conspiracy theories is there's there's a painting from 1595 by a guy called Ventura Salambini um, called The Glorification of the Eucharist. And it's one of those amazing Renaissance paintings where you have Jesus and God at the top of the painting. And they're both holding an object or they're holding the prongs of a silver object that looks kind of remarkably a little bit like Sputnik. Now, what? Just to put everyone's mind at rest, I think most art historians would tell you that it was quite a common representation of the heaven and the earth or the or the heavens and the earth. So I, I think we can definitely rule out time travel. But, yeah, you know, there, there's people out there who believe that sort of stuff, right? <laughs> I, I also like the idea that potentially the BB beeps and whatever else radio frequencies were being emitted, didn't that have an effect down on planet Earth? Have you heard anything like that? Yeah, there's there's a there's a great story of a guy called John Williams in America in um, in Florida, and he worked for the uh, Florida Institute of Technology, uh, working actually on radios. And in the middle of the night, about two a.m., he hears his automatic garage door just pop open. So of course, being uh, a quick thinking American, he grabs his uh, Colt forty five and he he shoots downstairs with his gun, thinking that he's being burgled and someone's about to steal his car. Um, and it was only after the fact, and he'd done a bit more research and worked out that it was uh, it was actually Sputnik's radio signal was just transmitting on the perfect wavelength to automatically open his garage door from space and and there's there's several stories of people in that sort of situation i don't think all of them it didn't happen to all of them at 2am where they had to run down <laughs> with a gun thinking they were being burgled though but that's quite sinister i mean it seems kind of cute if you think oh it's the garage door or you know some pleasure seekers vibrator or something that's suddenly surging into action. But um, it does have more sinister applications that probably the Soviets, the Americans and everybody else thought, hmm, 
hmm, if we can direct these beams in the right place, we can explode somebody's head. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I think the key the key thing really is reconnaissance when it comes to a military point of view. So, you know, before we start using space, obviously there was things like the U-2 spy plane that was allowing America to fly over Soviet Russia and learn more about what the reality of their situation was and, uh, and things like that. Um, but there'd always been this sort of debate between... In, when you're thinking about international law, obviously we're aware of things like international waters here on Earth where it doesn't belong to any one individual country. But then when you get to countries, obviously another country shouldn't be fly, flying airplanes over your airspace without permission. Um, and there was a while where I think Russia's general attitude was your airspace should just keep going up above your country pretty much infinitely. Now, <laughs> never, mind the f- never mind the fact that Earth twirls around. Yeah, and absolutely. That, and the airspace moves. Well, airspace moves, but if you take a column directly above your country, that's always going to be pointing in the same direction. But obviously, that you know that that's because they don't want uh, planes flying over and spying on them in the first place. But now, now they've got a something like Sputnik, and this is the point with it: is that it's travelling around the Earth every ninety-six minutes or so, whilst the Earth is turning underneath it. So it's always going over different areas. It travelled over America something like seven times a day. Now, if you can upgrade the technology to a point where this thing can start taking photos and start um, actually imaging the surface of America, you can learn an awful lot about it. So suddenly it becomes, well, actually, maybe the law for space should be international waters, as in anybody can just use space and spacecraft can go wherever they want. And that is very much how we use it these days. There's all sorts of complexities with that, but it does make military reconnaissance space big, big business. And and more money is spent on that pretty much than any other part of space travel um, and, and space science even these days because yeah it's an it's an incredible way of being able to monitor the earth not just for uh, things like global or climate change and things like that but actually yeah just keeping an eye on your neighbors is so much easier if you've got a satellite that's up there monitoring all the time so if there's a certain amount of domestic panic as garage doors flip open in the middle of the night dan what is the level of panic like in the corridors of power in the u.s yeah, it's an interesting one because definitely Eisenhower um, played it down. He didn't. He didn't want it, it uh, Americans to panic, and I think maybe did misjudge a little bit how much it would freak people out. The the problem he had was that obviously he had more information than the general public because of the fact that they had things like the U two spy planes flying overhead. So they so they had a better idea of actually. W- how many rockets, how many missiles um, that Soviets actually had and was there really a missile gap between what America were capable of um, and what they were capable of. In the aftermath, they did make some significant changes to policy, um, whether that be on the educational front with the National Defence Act where they they thought, well, we need to improve science education and put billions of pounds into that or whether it was the formation of NASA itself, which happens in 1950. 58, where we, we go from focusing on aviation and aeronautics to go and actually, you know, sp- space is a, a thing in itself. And we need to we need to focus on that. And it's almost like, Dan, that President Eisenhower didn't read the room when he gave his speech in his response to the Sputnik launch because he was kind of going, well, yeah, the the Soviets are ahead of us, you know, face facts. gasps from the audience. Yeah. <gasps> are they? Yeah. And he, you know, he was just like, call a spade a spade. And, uh, you know, we'll get there. We got to we got to put our 
pedal to the metal and uh, people didn't really like that approach, did they? They really wanted a more like gung-ho, kill, kill kind of approach. Yeah, and, the, and there were people like Werner von Braun, who by this point is you know working in America, and he were, he basically said, Look, you know, just give me the resources, and we'll launch our own satellite. And they they turned it around in remarkably quick time. That the difference, I guess, is often the case with this is the Soviets are so much more secretive than the Americans. So when the uh, when America tried to launch their first satellite, which is called Vanguard um, TV3, the world press, the media, it's being filmed. And unfortunately for them, it's a massive catastrophe and that this thing blows up on the launch pad. And ah. uh, there's a few cruel commentators who decide to call it Flopnik. Um, which is, you know, <laughs> decent. Yeah, decent. decent, yeah, fair play to them. You've got to give them that. Um, and it, it, eventually they end up lowering Explorer 1 later in 1958. So, you know, they... It, it is still pretty close between America and, and the Soviet Union, but the Soviets push on. They they manage to achieve so many other firsts throughout the space race. And it, here at the Space Centre, we have an exhibition that that is on that in terms of, I think these days you'll see lots of people walking around in NASA T-shirts that they've bought from shops. And generally, when you think about space, you think about NASA. But yes, they, spoiler alert for later in the series, but yes, America might, uh, land on the moon but there's so many firsts before that where the Soviets are ahead and it really is not until the mid-1960s that America starts to catch up and overhaul them One of those of course uh, Spacey uh, Pucknick um, being... Wait, wait, I have a, a... I have a nickname for you now. Okay. It took me it took me like almost the entire episode <laughs> to come up with this. Uh the precursor to Sputnik was Object D. Yeah. Your Object T. I'll take that. All right. Too big to go into space. That's <laughs> <laughs> the Object D, wasn't it? Object T. <laughs> Dan, I like the fact that when Sputnik 2 goes up, which uh, obviously is carrying Laika, our lovely Mongol dog from the streets of Moscow, that some people call that uh Mutnik. They do. Yes, absolutely. And hers is a, it's a, it's a really sad story, unfortunately. And uh, it's, Isn't it's, it? I didn't realise how cruel it was until I really started thinking about it. And the fact that it sounds like poor Laker, Katie, sorry, Spacey, um, just overheats oh. quite early in oh. her voyage to the heavens. That's right, yeah. And, and we only found that out in the... In the uh, I've had about 2002, 2003, when, they, when so, um, a Soviet scientist who had been involved in the time came out and said that because that wasn't the official position at the time. So Laika being launched on Sputnik 2 it really comes because Khrushchev... I think he's been surprised by the success of the uh, PR that's come out of this um, Sputnik 1 launch. And therefore, he sets Korolev a target and says, you know, come on, I want to follow that up with something else. They've got the 40th anniversary of the uh, October Revolution, which is always kind of weird that it's on the 7th of November. But I guess that's to do with the calendar change from the uh, Julian to Gregorian, lose a few days. Um, but he wanted something big, something to follow it up. So launching an animal, launching an animal into space, into orbit was going to be a first. Now, Laika's not the first dog to go into space. She's just the first dog to go into orbit. So again, oh. they've been launching some some spacecraft up and down into space. And the reality of the Soviet program with their dogs and their dog trials is that, you know, they don't all die. I think that's, again, the sort of common misconception we have these days. 
it's certainly unpleasant. It's certainly cruel. But, uh, you know, over in America, they're doing something very similar. It's just that they're using um, simians, so, you know, chimpanzees and uh, different types of um, rhesus monkeys and things like that. And it's it's all really, really unpleasant stuff. So it's a, it's a sad period. But at the time, it was very much felt that, you know, they weren't going to be sending humans first and they needed to learn about what, what it was like um, for living species to actually go into space like as i say might be the first animal to go into orbit but pub quiz question you know first animal to go into space it's actually some fruit flies launched at the top of a, a v2 style rocket after the war did they have names i don't think they never name they it's really sad but they do they never name the fruit flies or the meal another worms. faceless yeah fruit fly. absolutely you get all the all the cute fluffy animals get names um and and these these poor things never do no they don't even get any merchandise either, because I do know that Leica had all, all sorts of cute, I don't know, tea trays and, uh, you know, various posters and badges that you could pin to your boiled wool overcoat in the Soviet Union. But yeah, no, no fruit fly badges. No, never any fruit fly, fruit fly badges. There's a great story towards the end of uh, uh, the race to the moon where in um, just before America sent the first Apollo astronauts to the moon just to go around in orbit on Apollo 8, um, again, the Soviets want to get a bit of a one-up. So they, they send a flight first. They're not ready to go into orbit. They're not ready to send humans, but they were ready to send tortoises. Which So the, the, the first two animals ever to travel to the vicinity of the moon and come back and survive their flight are a pair of um, stepped tortoises. And again, you know, not just tortoises, there was also some mealworms, but, you know, at this time around, I don't think they named any of them, but, um, <laughs> you know, the, the history of animals in space is, yeah, it's, it's, it's largely a sad one for most of the part, but equally a lot of them survived. And one of the things that the Soviets did was they chose dogs deliberately. Um, they largely chose strays, um, and they largely chose female dogs because it was easier to work out a, a system for uh, yeah, toilet needs, basically, if you've just got um, got female dogs. But they, they chose dogs because they thought they would form a stronger bond with the scientists and would be easier to train. Whereas the Americans, uh, say, they went down the, um, the chimpanzee-style route of, of something a bit more akin to what it would be like physiologically to send a human into space. And, and there's some great Pathé news footage of Soviet scientists recovering some of the dogs that were sent on the early space flights where they just went straight up and down and they opened the um they opened the hatch to the spacecraft that they'd been sent up in and out pops this little dog that's so delighted to see them it's, it's really cute but you know i would say we can never shy away from the fact that it, it, it looking back um th through the eye of history it, it does seem a little bit cruel i have a couple of ideas uh just based on what you're saying one is just the concept of sending such an ancient animal, whether it's fruit flies, mealworms, or tortoises, I mean, like something a bit prehistoric that looks like a dinosaur, and then putting it in the most up-to-date technology and sending it in, into outer space, that just seems like such a delicious contrast. Yeah, I, I love the idea that by the time they come back, those two tortoises just go back to their lettuce, and they've not really got any clue of what they've done, and they just go on <laughs> living their lives. I've got a dream, Katie, where those two tortoises take control of the spaceship and just disappear off into deep space. <laughs> well, I have a dream that aliens intercept this craft <laughs> and think these are the brightest and the best that planet Earth has to offer and revere them as gods. <laughs> it's a good point. May, may, they might be right. <laughs> 
Um, you mentioned Khrushchev. So um, we got to know our buddy Nikita Khrushchev uh, on an earlier episode. I am sure he was jumping up and down like a jacket potato of delight <laughs> at the Soviet success with Sputnik. What was his his response? Because you indicated that he didn't even anticipate what a coup it would be. Yeah, I think he definitely knew it was a big thing. There's a, there's a story that goes that he was at a dinner party when he got the call um, basically to tell him that it had been successful. So he came back into the room having taken this call and he says to the group, um, I've just had a call from Korolev. Oh, you're not supposed to know about him because he's, he's top secret. The, the trick with Korolev was he was so important to the Soviet space program that the West didn't learn of his existence or his name until after he died in 1966. Um, he was just referred to as the chief designer. That was all we knew him of. So he went. He said, "Well, you're not supposed to know that." But anyway, Korolev. He's he's just told me that we've launched the first artificial satellite. And the dinner party, it, it just tumbleweed because they didn't really understand like <laughs> the significance of it. I think he knew. But, right. but to go back to that, the, the news report that TASS put out, it was it was just relatively. Um, I guess kind of mundane. It wasn't. It wasn't front page headline that took up fifteen pages of a newspaper. It was really just the international press's reaction. And at that point, I'm sure it dawned on him even more that okay, you know, coupled with the nuclear testing that's going on, we've got something here that we can really show the world that we're um, the most technologically advanced. A Soviet at the time, Khrushchev himself, I'm sure he would have uh, carried on at that dinner party and explained the fact that we've run, we've won the space race. Um, because we've launched the first thing into space. I mean, you know, we, we got there first. Casey, Billy loves his baseball, as we know well by this point in our podcast. It's almost like, because I was thinking maybe the Russians won the space race because they got the first satellite up there, they got the first tortoise up there and the first dog. But maybe in uh, Billy terms, the Soviets got to first base and second base and then the Americans whoosh, did a Mickey Mantle and sent a Homer whoosh, clean out the park that was a very very satisfying link that you just delivered <laughs> complete with sound effects and over florid metaphors thank you object t for your skills in this matter and thank you dan for filling katie and my heads with so much wonderful space knowledge you're more than welcome Spacey, I have a question for you. If offered the opportunity to fly into space, would you take it up or would you say, uh-uh? Hell no! What? I'm not going to... I, there's... I'm in the middle, I'm at the best time of my young life. Don't eject me into the stratosphere the and beyond. I... I have pleasure to bring to at least one person, if not millions. <laughs> I'm going to try my best. No. What's in space for me? What's there? Cookies? No. Petting zoo with baby kittens? No. Um, do I want to die of heat prostration? Do I want my skull to crush in on itself like a coconut dropped from a great height? I don't want any of those things to happen to me. I mean... I can barely organize it so that I can go have a holiday on the south coast of Britain <laughs> in a mangy tent. So, and I'm a cheap date. That would make me happy. I don't want it. Don't make me go into space, Object T. How about you? 
It's a slightly awkward case. I'm going to have to take your birthday present back to the shop. I think I get the receipt, so we're right. <laughs> Which was a one-way ticket to <laughs> to Mars with <laughs> Elon. <laughs> the, I could make a joke about Uranus here, Katie, but I certainly won't bring the tone down. <laughs> Next week, Katie, we are going to a very different place. We are going to... Uh, oh, we're going to investigate a fellow by the name of Chow and Lai. What do we know about Chow and Lai, other than he sounds delicious? (laughs) Sounds absolutely delicious. I know nothing, Katie. And those are sometimes my very favourite episodes of We Didn't Start the Fire. I think I can confidently declare and proclaim that Chow and Lai is a Chinese leader. And he gives Mao a run for his money. Well, this is excellent news. This sounds like a thriller. And if you would like a podcast to listen to before we meet Chow and Lai, let me recommend Death of a Sports Star. These are the immersive stories of the sporting heroes we loved but lost too soon. People like Kobe Bryant, Diego Maradona, Sonny Liston and Marco Pantani. Just search for Death of a Sports Star in all your usual podcast places. Do you know what would really tickle our pickle, everybody? If you followed us on the socials, you can do so at Spread That Fire. And also, please subscribe because it makes us look popular. And Katie, we've also had some lovely correspondence yes. from listeners suggesting guests for future episodes. They know we need all the help we can oh, get. big time. So if you're one of those people who has a burning desire to get a friend, a colleague or a learned yourself on the show, let us know. At Spread That Fire on all the usual socials. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender Hi. as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. 
In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.